John chapter 15 as we continue our study through the book of John and through the Bible. We've got the gospel of John to finish up and then the epistles of John and then the book of Revelation. And for those of you who started with us, you will have gone through the entire Bible. And that is an exciting thing for us to have accomplished. But right now we're at John 15. Let's read the first, uh, first 11 verses. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them up and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically, Lord, for this wonderful chapter about uh, the vine and about the branches, about you and about your father and about us. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at the Gospel of John, speaking about the deity of Christ, the I am that I am, the self-existing one, the Yahweh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made. So we see in the book of John that Jesus comes from His glory down to earth. He's incarnate, and in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see that Jesus came down to earth, was born in Bethlehem in a manger, lived a sinless life, and he's now at a place where he has come to actually be a servant, washing the feet of his disciples. From his glory down, Pastor Brandon does that thing with the V, from his glory down to the incarnation, and then back up to his glory at the end of the chapter. Chapter 13 starts the second part of John, or the second book. And John has been telling us that Jesus has been telling us that we can have Zoe life, or life eternal. Not life eternal in length of time, but in quality of life. And it's not something that's going to happen in an event in the future, the rapture or some other event, but it's something that can happen right now. Life eternal. He has given seven miracles 
And he's based his teaching around these. He's also given us seven I am statements. Now, there's actually 23 times in the gospel that he says, I am. But with seven of them, he adds a metaphor. He adds a word that describes him. When Moses was talking to the bush or talking to God represented by the bush, he asked the question, when I get down there to the people and the people ask me, who sent me? What's his name? What should I say to them? And the Lord said, you tell them, I am that I am sent you. And that was a self-existing one. So Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then tonight he says, I am the true vine. Now, just to remember what's happening, this is the last period of time of Jesus' life. The triumphal entry has already taken place. And we're probably less than 24 hours before his crucifixion. In chapter 13 and 14, when we saw last week, the day began with the Passover dinner. Jesus announced his betrayal. He washed the feet. He told the disciples that he was going to be crucified. And that crucifixion was actually a glorification that was going to take place. He gave the upper room discourse. He announced his departure from the world. He comforted his disciples and he promised to send a helper, someone to come alongside. So he's been talking to a group of perplexed disciples, people who couldn't quite understand what was going on. Just a few hours, Jesus will be betrayed. He will be deserted by all. He will be mocked. Falsely accused, falsely tried, beaten, and crucified. And at the end of chapter 14, he says, arise and let's be going. So he starts out on a walk. And that's where this 15th chapter and probably through 17 takes place. So he's talking about the Zoe life and what it is. But now Jesus is going to be talking to us about how do we get the Zoe life. How do we have the Zoe life? The Zoe life is that life eternal. In this chapter, he's going to talk about three relationships that we would have with the world or with, with within the world or the cosmos, what you would say. First, he's going to talk about the relationship with himself. Then he's going to talk about the relationship with other believers. And then he's going to talk about the relationship that we should have or should not have with the world. The disciples knew that Israel was compared to a vine. We read from Psalms 80, that, uh, that passage about the vine, but there's uh, passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah about the nation being the vine. When you went into the court, uh, the outer court of the temple, there were vines carved into the doors, and you could see it. And so Jesus on this walk, he may have taken the time, because he was in the upper room in Jerusalem, he may have walked through the courtyard of the temple on their way to Gethsemane, or maybe he was walking along and there was a vine, a vine, a vine, a vineyard, and he saw the vineyard. But something brought that up. I think a lot of times the parables, if you look at them, he, when he said a sower went out to, to sow, he might have looked up on a hill and saw a sower sowing, and said that's what he used for the example. I think Jesus used real practical things to do this. So the Old Testament, full of illustrations about um, 
the, the vineyard. Matthew 21, Jesus uses it as a parable to talk about the, um, about the vineyard, uh, the owner. He, he planted the vineyard. He got it all ready. He dug the wine press, and he took off, and he went to a far country. And then he sent a servant back, and they beat him. He sent another servant back, and they beat him. Finally, he sent his son. They beat him and killed him. They were going to take it. And then what's going to happen was the question when the, when the landowner comes back and they realize that they were ta- he was talking to those Jewish leaders because Israel had, fulf- had not fulfilled its role as being the vineyard that the Lord wanted them to be, bringing fruit to the glory of God. So Jesus is the vine, and he says the true vine, meaning I am not the vine of Israel that was planted because it hasn't produced fruit. The husbandman is the father, and we are the branches. So you are a branch in this, in this illustration. Um, nothing more than a branch hanging on a vine. Um, the branch does not produce the fruit. It just bears the fruit. The ones that are not uh, producing a lot of fruit, he prunes them or takes it away or bears more fruit. But the, the Greek there, the literal word is he lifts it up. And he picks it up. And the vineyards over in Israel or in dry countries are not the kind that we have up in Napa and places like that where the the trunk comes up nice and then it spreads out over a bunch of wires that are hanging there and it looks all good. They grow right on the ground. So the trunk kind of bends and it's heavy and it carries the weight. And then they'll prop it up with wood or rocks or things like that to keep it. But the branches will lay out and the weight of the fruit will sometimes bring them right down to the ground. And so the, the vineyard uh, dresser or the, or the husbandman would have to go around and pick those branches up, dust them off if they were dirty. If, if a rain came, the, dirt, the dust over there would turn to mud, and that mud would get uh, impacted around the grapes, so they would have to clean them all up. And the, um, the process was what he would do and go through that. So part of this process of cleaning for us as branches is with the word of God. Look at verse 3. You are already clean, he says to the disciples, because of the word which I have spoken to you. And we know from other verses, things that we've studied, that we are cleansed by the word of God. How can a young man cleanse his way? By keeping it according to the word of God. That works for old men, young women, older women too. It works for everyone. We, We cleanse ourselves by being in the word of God. But the verse helps us to understand the previous verse, too, about the pruning. The vine dresser isn't going around with a hedge trimmer. You know, I see the guys working around here. They're all out there with weed eaters and hedge trimmers and chainsaws. That's not the way the vine dresser is going through the vine. He's going through tenderly and picking it up and washing the grape and taking care of it and pruning back the branches and making sure that they are um, being taken care of. He says in verse 4, Abide in me. John uses the word abide over 20 times in the book of John, and he uses it over 20 times in the epistles of John. We'll see that a lot when we study the epistles of John. The word is meno in the Greek, and it means to stay, to continue, to dwell, to remain in a particular place or a particular relationship. So that's what we're supposed to do. For us who are married, it means we're to stay in that relationship with our husband and with our wife. John used the word abide several times in previous chapters, but this is the best illustration of what it means to abide. Branches, that's you and me. They're really kind of weak and useless, kind of like us. They really aren't good for anything except just hanging there and bearing fruit. And that's what we're supposed to be. 
We're either supposed to bear fruit or be pruned. We cannot produce a fruit unless we're connected to the vine. And it's our abiding, it's our, abiding our communion with Christ that allows us to produce his fruit and not our fruit. And I think that's so important for us to realize that when we're in service for the Lord, we're producing his fruit. Without the connection, the branches die, and then they're not worth anything. So to abide means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his Zoe life, his eternal life, can work in and through us to produce much fruit. And I like the... um, the, the way that it goes there in verse 2, it says that the evidence of, the, of one being produced in you, of your abiding, is that you produce fruit. But then it says in verse 2 that after you're cleansed and after you've been pruned a little bit, you will produce more fruit. And then going forward to verse 5, after abiding for a while, you will produce much fruit. And I think that's a good um, analogy or good formula to look at in our lives. How's our fruit? Are we producing more fruit than we used to produce? We should be as long as we're abiding more with Christ. 5B tells us the key to bearing fruit. It's not our sufficiency. Jesus says there at the end, without him, we can do nothing. We sang that in one of the songs tonight. So it's obvious Richard read ahead because he knew that that song made an application here. Interesting, though, that Paul in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So without him, we can do nothing. And through him, we can do all things. And I think that's an, an interesting comparison of how it should be. Just as salvation is impossible without God, so bearing fruit is impossible without him. The branches, you and me, we're just here to bear fruit and bear the grapes. We're not to produce it. That is the Lord's job. Verse 6 talks about the non-bearing fruit and the fire. And so you theologians can figure out what this is all about. I'm going to give you the three viewpoints, and you can play with it all you want. You can go to Bill's tomorrow and argue about it. Uh, We're just going to tell you that there's three different viewpoints. The first one is the view that the believer is the cast-out branches are the ones, though they once were true believers end up in hell for lack of fruit or that they are no longer connected or abiding. They were once saved and cast out. That's one view. A second view is that they were cast out branches are pseudo-Christians or people who are involved in the fellowships but not necessarily Christians. Um, And they're not really abiding in Jesus. And then therefore they don't make it like maybe Judas was. And then the third one is the are branches that are just fruitless Christians who live wasted, burnt-up lives, like Lot. You know, Lot was rescued out of where he was. He had an opportunity, but he didn't take it. You guys can argue that one all, all, all that you want to. Verse 7, with mutual abiding, again, we have a special privilege in prayer. Because we abide in Christ and he is in us, we have the ability to pray anytime, anywhere, for anything. Uh, it's an imperative when in the Greek language here, it's an imperative that you pray. So verse seven reads, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And I think it's so important. If we really have the word of God in us and we understand what the Lord 
his will is for our lives, we would be praying for the things that go along with the word of God. And if that's the case, then God would clearly hear our prayers and answer our prayers. So often I think we miss that because we're not praying according to his will. So we have to allow Christ to abide in us, his word, and to pray according to his will. Verse 8, it says, By this, or herein in the King James, refers to, what, refers to what is following, My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You know, we haven't talked about the fruit yet, about your fruit. What is the evidence of your abiding in Christ? I'm going to give you three of them. Maybe you can dwell on these a little bit during the week. Evidence of your abiding in Christ could be seen in your character, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Ephesians 5, 9, about your character. The fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. How about a fruit of the Spirit being your conduct, how you conduct life, your holiness? But now, this is Romans 6, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting or Zoe life. And how about your conversation? The fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So you can go home and do a self-inspection. Don't need anybody else to do it for you. I don't have to come over and judge you or not, not, not your brother or sister. But just go home and run through those things. How's my character? Galatians 5, 22, 23. How's my conduct? Romans 6, 22. And how's my conversation? Hebrews 13, 15. Hmm. The fruit of our lips. Check your fruit out. That's a good way to do it. Now, in 12 to 17, he talks about our relationships with each other. And this is so important for us as believers. And I think it's one of the things that we have in fellowship here uh, that's really unique is that we do have a loving, caring fellowship. So let's look at verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, whatever I command, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that what, whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. To be, gil- be willing to give our lives to one another and to care for one another. He says in verses 14 and 15, You are my friends, no longer servants. You know, a servant obeys out of duty, like a military situation. There's a duty, you have to do it. 
But a friend does it out of love and out of a deep relationship for each other. And I hear stories all the time of people helping each other around the fellowship. Someone was working on a deck and somebody else came over and landed a hand. And those extra two pair of hands made the job go a lot faster. And it was something that was done. In verse 16, Jesus chose them and he appointed them. He chose them to bear fruit. I like that, that he chose us to bear fruit. Verse 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain appointed in the King James or in the Greek is to ordain. So you are ordained to bear fruit and it means to purpose or to commission. So I thought of these three words, friends, chosen and ordained that Jesus was using here in this uh, as he was telling it. And and I came to realize that I am a chosen friend of Jesus ordained to bear fruit. Say that with me. I am a chosen friend of Jesus ordained to bear fruit. Really? I am a chosen friend of Jesus ordained to bear fruit. Man, we ought to be the fruitiest group in the mountain then. Because that's what we've been called and chosen and ordained to do is to bear fruit. I like that, that that's what we're here for. And in 17, once again, he commands us to love one another, closing out this part of his talk with his friends. You know, this has been a pretty intimate chat that he's had in the upper room and now walking on his way to Gethsemane. He's been comforting his disciples. He's going to tell them right now, you're going to be hated The word translated if should really be because or since the world hates you. By now, the evening is growing long. The dinner would have started at sundown. So they had the dinner. They've washed the feet. They've started out and they're walking through the Kidron Valley, down that valley, and then up into the Mount of Olives where the garden was. You know the events of the night. You know what's coming. This is all on Jesus' mind. It's on his heart. Jesus knew also that after this, his disciples were going to face the religious leaders. They would be excommunicated from the temple, from the synagogue, Judaism, and their national life. So these 11 guys were going to be just have everything ripped apart from them as the new work, the church, begins. So he told them of the deep relationship that they needed to have with him. Abide in me like the branch and the vine. And then he told them of the deep relationship they needed to have with one another, love one another, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, so fulfill this. It's so important for us to love one another. And don't we know, disciple, that we need these two things today? We need to be abiding with Jesus, and we need to loving one another. Because how in the world are we going to face what's out in the world if we don't have those two things working in our life? So those two same relationships are so needed. And then in verses 18 to 21, Jesus warns them about what is to come. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus warns them of the world and the hatred that's coming. I think it's interesting that Jesus contrasts these three different relationships, two really positive ones, a relationship with him, a relationship with other believers, and then this negative one, the relationship with the world. The blessing of a fruitful life, living, abiding with Christ, having joy and having your prayers answered, having fellowship with other believers. What a wonderful first part of this chapter. He's telling these disciples it's going to be. And then he compares that with the future persecution that's just days away. The word for hatred means to hate, to detest, and to abhor. And it's used eight times in this little passage. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We see they are no longer of the world They are out of the world. They've been separated for it. And we see a call to separate in the New Testament. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians this word. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Baal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So in verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love you. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we are to be be unique. We are to be different than the world. People should know that we're believers by our love. They should know we're believers by the things that we say. And we should have that Christ-centered worldview that lets people know that we believe in what we're talking about. I think as the country moves forward and as things continue to seem to be degrading as far as our morality and our ethics, it's going to become more apparent who are Christian and who are not and who's willing to stand up and who's willing to take the heat because we are not of this world. We have been called out of the world. And so in verse 20, he says again, the servant is not greater than the master. In other words, if they persecute me, they're definitely going to persecute you as well. And I think he's reminding them in verse 20 of the words and more words that he said on the Sermon on the Mount, where he told them, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies 
Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and who persecute you. And that's the same Greek word that John uses here that Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine the confusion of the disciples? He says in chapter 14, verse 1 in the um, all of it, I mean, in the upper room. Hey, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. Everything's going to be okay. Then he says a little bit later in that talk, I'm going to send you a helper. He's the paracletus. He's going to come alongside. He's going to help you. He's going to take care of you. And then he says at the end of that chapter, peace, I leave you. Not your peace, my peace. I'm going to leave you my peace. Then he says, oh, by the way, the world's going to hate you. It's going to be really tough. Jesus has, encount- has continued in this passage to remind, remain focused on the primary objective to bear fruit for the glory of the Father. Love one another and know that you are no longer citizens of this world, but of his kingdom, his kingdom of Zoe life. We have that eternal life now, not looking for it someday in the future. The disciples of Jesus Christ were kind of perplexed. They were having a rough time. But I think some of us can be perplexed and some of us can be going through rough times. And I think it would be good for us to remember these words that he said to them. So in verses 22 to 27, we've read some of those already. He expands on the consequences of those things to the world. I've spoken to the world, he says. I've showed them their sin so they have no excuse any longer. In verse 25, it says, They hated me without a cause testifies against Israel. The Old Testament said over and over that prophecies would be fulfilled. In Psalm 69, it says that they would, ha- they would hate the Messiah when he came without a cause. Then and today, the world hates Jesus without a cause. If you've tried to witness lately, people get so mad when you talk to them about Jesus. And you say, why? What did Jesus do to you to make you so angry when I mentioned his name? And they don't even know what he said. You say, well, what do you think about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I've never read that. Well, what do you think about uh, the, the dialogue that went on with the disciples here in the book of John when, they, when he was talking to them and just the hours before he did? What do you think of that? Well, I've never read that. But you hate Jesus like that? Why? You know, hating without a cause. That's what's happening there. So then in verses 26 and 27, but the helper, the paracletus will come whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we see the Trinity here. The Holy Spirit is coming, Jesus is going to send him, and he proceeds from the Father. So again, chapter 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he ends out with, I leave you my peace. A heart that's not troubled, no fear, and his peace. And then chapter 16, which we're going to start right now, ends with these words. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace and in the world you will have tribulation. <laughs> but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So you're going to go out there and have tribulation, but be of good cheer with it. You know, there's a difference between the peace with God and the peace of God. You have peace with God when you are saved. When you come to the realization that your sins are washed away, that the just, the just uh, application of the law has been taken care of by the things that took place on the cross, and you come to that place, you have peace with God. 
But the peace of God is the peace that comes over us and takes away our anxieties or our frustrations or our bitterness or our anger. That's what we have when we abide in Christ. So in chapter 16, Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for what's coming next. The chapter starts with these words. These things I have spoken to you. And it also ends in in verse 33. These things I have spoken to you. So he uses that same phrase. The first verse says, I've spoken these things to you so that you won't stumble, that you won't fall, that you'll be able to make it out there in the world that hates you. And the last one says, so that you will have peace. So his words were to be words of comfort to the disciples. And his words should be comfort to us, his disciples today. We should constantly be reading the words of Christ. I think it's important as we do devotions that we keep ourselves in the Gospels where we're hearing the words of Christ repeatedly. So work it out some way. If you're going to do an Old Testament thing, stop five minutes early and read a little bit of the Gospel so that you keep the words of Christ in you. Let's look at the first seven verses. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, time is coming when they will kill you and they will think that he offers God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where I'm going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We'll go on a little bit further. And when he comes, he he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He warns specifically about the things to come, being kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the center of national life for the Jewish people. In the community, the families would gather together at the synagogue. It would be one of the most important things. And you will be, people will be killed, and the person that's doing the killing will be thinking he's doing God a favor. And their hearts were sorrowful. His going away is an advantage. Man, that would be hard to, to believe. I mean, you've been with him for three and a half years. You've seen all the things that have been going on. And he's telling you, if I go away... It's to your advantage. Well, that's, that's not going to work. But it is important because the Holy Spirit came and filled the 11 and then filled the early church, the 5,000 and the, and, the and the 120 and the people that were being saved in the way, the way the church expanded. I'm still amazed that Jesus chose the church to be the way to continue the gospel, but that's what he did and that's who we are. And so we need the Holy Spirit He said there that he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Sin is the truth about us. Sin is the truth about mankind. Righteousness is the truth about God. He is righteous. He said he will will convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to my Father. The Father and Jesus were righteous. And judgment is is the coming together of those two things 
the combination of these truths. Mankind is a sinner. God is righteousness. God is righteous. And judgment is what takes place at the cross one way or the other. Either your judgment is set aside because you believe in the cross or you will be judged because you don't believe in the cross. Now in verses 12 to 15, he turns to the Holy Spirit Spirit working within the disciples, guiding them and telling them and helping them. So let's see how that works. So verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me and he will take of what and he will talk. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Three ways he's going to help us. He's going to guide them into all truth. If you don't do this, when you open your Bible, start doing it. Holy Spirit, lead me as I read the word. Guide me as I read the word. Speak to me as I read the word. Invite the Holy Spirit to guide you. Like it says, like Jesus said he would do. And he said he'll tell you the future. He said he will tell you of things to come. Um, be careful with that. I don't want any prophets out there coming up and setting the date of the rapture, okay, or those types of things. But he will tell you things to come. I think the Lord will give us the gift of discernment when we need it, when we need, the, when we need to know what's happening, or words of wisdom or words of knowledge when we need to have those things in our daily life. And he will come and help us to glorify Christ. When you, and, and, and we've probably all had this happen. You've been in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden things turn towards religion, turn towards Christ. And all of a sudden you start talking about things and quoting verses and paraphrasing, paraphrasing verses and telling stories that you don't even know where that came from. And that's the Holy Spirit working within you to help glorify Christ. And that is an amazing thing when it happens. In verse 20, Jesus tells them that their sorrow will be turned to joy. So verse 20, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice with you and you you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow sorrow will be turned to joy. And then he goes on and he gives some examples about it. But when he says most assuredly there in some translations, it will say truly, truly. But a good literal translation would be Jesus is saying, I guarantee this. Your sorrow will be turned to joy when the Holy Spirit comes. In verse 22, the joy that the Lord gives us, no one can take from us. Verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one can take from you. And I think it's so important for us to clearly understand the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is what we get from the external or the emotional things that come into our life. We can be happy over UCLA beating USC or or USC beating UCLA. Either way, we can be happy about that. But that's not joy. Joy is something that can't be taken away from us. Joy is something that happens when we are in a trial and we're working through it and we have a joy unspeakable and full of glory, the scripture says. And so joy is something that is is based upon our relationship. It's a spiritual thing. It's our confidence in the Lord. 
In verses 23 and 24, Jesus tells them again of the power and the privilege of prayer. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. More assuredly, I say to you, whatever you do ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. Do you not have joy in your life? Jesus is saying here, you will have joy. He promised you joy. That's how you pray the word of God into your lives. Lord, you said, I will have joy. I really don't have any joy. I'm I'm struggling. I'm bitter. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. You said you'd give me joy. Give me joy. That is an honest prayer to God that you can sit there and say, Lord, I want your joy. I want the joy, even though I'm going through this difficult situation. In verses uh, 25 to 33, he adds more on this using the phrase, phrase, these things. So verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. He talked about uh, earlier, he had talked about a woman having birth and how it was so painful at the time of birth. But once the, uh, the child was born, that there was great rejoicing. So he talks, uh, he'd used some illustrations there. These things I have spoken to you in figurative uh, language, verse 25. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figures of speech. No figures of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered, Do you now believe? He knows that they're going to all scatter. They're going to deny. Peter's going to go through his three denials. He knows that. Do you really believe? It was going to take some time. It was going to take the Holy Spirit to get them to the place where they turned the world upside down. And so verse 32, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, and now and has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father and I are not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Verses 26 and 27, we are loved by the Father and we can go directly to Him. We can have the confidence with that. In 1 John chapter 5, we read, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So when you know what the word of God says regarding a relationship, regarding a situation, when it's clear, you need to pray it. You need to have confidence that we have in him that he has told you straight things, straightforward things. And notice how straightforward he was in explaining his mission there in verse 28. I came forth from the Father, and I have gone into the world again. I, I leave, and I leave the world and go back to the Father. He kind of knew where he was heading. 
And I've been working through something on, on decision-making that's been kind of interesting. When you know what the value is, what you, when you know where the vision is, the decisions are easy. When an organization doesn't know what the value is or doesn't know what the vision is, decisions become hard to make. Jesus knew what his mission was. I must be about my father's business. I set my mind to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. I know where I'm going. So as things came at him, the decisions were easy because the mission was clear. And that's so important. Actually, that's a quote from Roy Disney. When you know the value, the decisions are easy. If you're having a rough time with making decisions about a situation, about a problem, about some anxious thing that's going on in your life, Maybe you need to define the mission. Maybe you need to define the value. Because after you've done that, the decision-making process gets really easy. Does it fit the mission? Does it not? Does it fit within our value or does it not? The decisions become much easier. In verse 33, these things Jesus had spoken to them that they may have peace. He knows they will have tribulation or pressure is the literal Affliction and distress, be of good cheer, be confident, be courageous, is the literal translation. I have overcome the world. In this, Jesus proclaims the truth of his victory. It's an amazing statement for a man to make who's about to be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, tortured, and executed. What an amazing thing to be telling his disciples, these things I have spoken, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, be of good courage, be of good cheer, or good courage, I have overcome the world. Judas, the religious leaders, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, even death and the grave cannot overcome him. Jesus could truly say, I have overcome the world. He goes to the cross, not in fear or in gloom, but as a conqueror. He knows where he's going. And this story continues in the next couple chapters as we head towards the cross. Knowing that Jesus has overcome the world should bring us good cheer. It is the foundation for our peace in him. Jesus' life began with the declaration of peace in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was the angels, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And now his last words to his disciples is a declaration of that peace that was promised on the night of his birth. And notice the contrast with me, if you will. Your life can be in me or in Christ versus in the world. Your experiences can be peace or tribulation. Let's pray.